Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save." Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If you'd join me in praying. Lord, we continue to come to you in prayer, asking for strength and clarity. We pray you'd speak to us this morning through your word, that you would comfort those who believe, strengthen their hearts in faith, and for those who do not, you would quicken their hearts to salvation. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I happen to be one of those that, uh, at least in some extent, likes uh, and somewhat of a buff of World War II. Uh, that's it seems that's such a fascinating time of our country, and I've just, I just I kind of like World War II. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a very educated buff, but I like World War II. And to put the context of what we're about to study in, can you imagine on December eighth? Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave one of the most important and famous speeches uh, in our country's history before Congress. Can you imagine FDR? I took a copy of his speech. And let's just, in our minds, imagine this as what FDR would say. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, 
American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Our intelligence now believes Japan plans an invasion of California in approximately two days. And I must confess, we simply do not have the might or forces to withstand this invasion. Can you imagine if that's what FDR actually said? And if you can, that it begins to put the context of what we just read into place. For oftentimes, when we read scripture, and we read these old stories in the Old Testament, they're nothing more than just stories to us. But they were real. They were real lives affected. They were real people. Jehoshaphat was a real king. We just read the story, we move on to chapter 22. Then we move to chapter 23. We read about three men being thrown in a fiery furnace. And then we move on to the next story. It's like, no, no. It was a furnace that was on fire. You know, and we don't necessarily begin to put ourselves into the, the shoes or sandals of the text in which we're reading. But this morning we read a text in which real, clear destruction was at the doorstep. And so we're going to examine this passage really just in three phases. One, we're going to simply look at the context of what faces Jehoshaphat. Second, we'll look at his reaction. And then lastly, we'll examine his prayer. But first, the context. Notice, if you would, in verse 1, the Holy Spirit clearly sets out two words that jump out of the text at us after this. For the Holy Spirit wants us to understand the context of this story. For after this, that means we must look back and read chapters 17 and 18 and 19. And there we'd find out this, that Jehoshaphat was a godly king. His father Asa was godly, but he began to wane quickly as he became older, but not Jehoshaphat. He placed reform throughout all the land. He tore down the high altars of Asheroth. He even very ingenuously and different, and we find there also in Scripture, created, if you would, revival teams. He pulled uh, Levites and priests and officials, and he sent them in different directions across the land with the, with the word of the Lord to teach everyone God's word and God's holy law. He was all about driving home the importance of worshiping the one true and only God, the one who had called them out of Egypt and put them in the land. Great revival had come at that time to Judah. That's the context of this. Oftentimes we see in the Old Testament God bringing foreign armies as judgment. But we wouldn't see that here because Jehoshaphat was very much about teaching his people God's law. He implemented judges all across the land. He even put them in Jerusalem and said to them and charged them, Be careful, for you judge not as men, but you judge for the Lord. And there is no injustice And God, always judge rightly. He was very concerned, very much a strong spiritual leader for his people. In the context of that, he wakes up one morning and there's a knock on the door, in theory here. There's a knock on the door from someone. Scripture does not record who it is. It could have been a deserter from the opposing force. 
It could have been a spy. It could have been one of his own citizens. A a warning him saying, there are forces coming. They're coming from Moab. They're coming from the Mayunites. And the scriptures record in chapter 3, he was afraid. Excuse me. To give you an idea, because it says they're in En Gedi. That really doesn't mean much to us. Don't know what that really means. So I'll put it in context for us. If Winesburg is Jerusalem, they're in Cambridge. They're 50, 60 miles away. They've come from the south, southeast, and they're headed north. They're about three days out. He doesn't have much time. Maybe four. That's the context that this word comes where Jehoshaphat and his people are. They somehow snuck up on him. And his reaction is one thing. Actually, two on one verse. Verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. Interestingly enough, Jehoshaphat's reaction was afraid. I think, if nothing else, this at least give us the context of just how powerful this force was. For Jehoshaphat himself commanded an army of nearly a million men. And if a million men were at his disposal and he was afraid, that tells you the overwhelming force that was coming and coming for him. He was strategically beaten. Don't know why. Don't know what happened. Don't know where his spies were or weren't. Don't know what... What military goof had happened, but a massive army had snuck up from the south. But then it records, and he, uh, he set his face to seek the Lord. We should really understand this phrase. It isn't just simply, he turned and looked to the Lord. There's something much stronger there. We see this phrase numerous times, especially in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, it's speaking about God. Listen to how God uses this phrase in Leviticus chapter 20 when warning his people about using children for sacrifice. Leviticus 20 verse 2, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones, and I myself will set my face against that man. And cut him off from among his people. When you set your face in biblical context, it's an unwavering, undaunted, steeled-eyed vision. The best example comes from the book of Luke uh, chapter 9. Only times we find it in the New Testament. Speaking of our Lord, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is the attitude from which Jehoshaphat took in the face of his fear and that opposing force. He set his face towards the Lord. He had an unwavering, undaunted, steeled-eyed vision towards seeking God. And he called a fast. Now remember, they didn't have Facebook back then, right? They didn't have telegraph, telephones, smoke signals. It's a large enough country. He had to send writers and people out to spread the word, right? He had to go out. Time is of the essence. The clock's ticking. They're on the march. Don't know exactly. My, my uh, uh, guess or my assumption here is that the word went out with this. 
there's a fast in the land, and you better fast while you're heading to Jerusalem. Because the scriptures record everyone came to, uh, to the temple. Time's wasting, so they were probably fasting as they traveled to get back to Jerusalem. And so now the stage is set. Everyone, it's set, the scriptures uh, say, all have come to Jerusalem. And they've come to the temple. Verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court. Jehoshaphat brings everyone together to pray. But there's nothing left for him to do. Interestingly enough, he's from the line of David. So his great-great-grandpa was Solomon. Solomon more than likely stood at nearly the exact same place he stood at the temple when he called everyone there. Solomon dedicated this temple, and he was more than likely standing very close to where Solomon did. Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple, he will reference in his prayer, we'll see later on. But I can't imagine what was in his mind as he's calling everyone there. And he begins to pray. And we can see his prayer, just a few uh, overarching themes. The first, as he begins to pray, he confesses the sovereignty of God. He says in verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. He begins his prayer acknowledging and confessing the sovereignty of God. And might I say that every Christian prayer begins that way. Whether or not on purpose, whether or not consciously, if you pray to God, you are confessing his sovereignty. Because in one way or another, your heart knows that God is in control of this. For when overwhelming forces come our way, when disaster looms, when we are in situations of total chaos, and we have no idea what is going on, it's the sovereignty of God that becomes our anchor. It's the stake in the ground that holds us there. Without the sovereignty of God, we have nothing but chaos. And he begins his prayer with the sovereignty of God. Without it, he's up to his own strength, and he already knows that's not enough, doesn't he? He has everyone there, and he begins by praying the sovereignty of God. He knows God is bigger than this invading force, for he f- says there is none able to withstand you. The second thing he does, he begins to remember. Verse 7, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying... And this is Solomon's prayer. He uses it, almost quotes it directly, but he uses Solomon's prayer. If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine. We will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house. And cry out to you in our affliction. And you will hear and save. My friends, because of the sovereignty of God, which is how he starts his prayer, he now can move to the promises of God. Because God can make good on them. If God wasn't sovereign, what good are the promises? But because God is sovereign, 
how good are the promises. For he begins to remember, 1,200 years ago, to your friend Abraham, you promised the very land we're standing in. You delivered us out of Egypt. You took us from the most powerful nation in the world and you brought us to this great land. You gave us water from a rock. You fed us with something called manna, bread from the ground. You delivered us. We passed through the Jordan when it was dry into this ground. When we came here, he remembers, then we built you a sanctuary. You have now dwelled with us. He's remembering the faithfulness and the goodness of God as God continually kept his promise over and over. He remembers it, and he prays it for his people. But then he comes out with it. Verse 10, And now behold, this is what's on his heart. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, excuse me, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? He prays for justice. He prays for judgment. What he's really praying for is relief from his circumstance. But he prays and he reminds God, God is all about justice. Remember Micah 6, 8, what is required of thee, O man, but to love mercy and to seek justice and to walk humbly? Justice is a characteristic of God himself. He's praying within the will of God when he's praying for justice and judgment upon these enemies. But he points out just how grave the injustice was. For these tribes that are coming after him, that came and snuck around the Dead Sea and came up north, they are the very ones that God had commanded when they took over Israel, because they're the children of Lot, to not conquer them, to let them be. They did not conquer these folks, these, these tribes. They let them go at God's direction. And Jehoshaphat's pointing out the grave injustice of this. Look, we let them go, and they're repaying us by coming to invade us and take over our land. He invokes justice. He prays within the will of God. But ultimately, what he's really praying for is relief from his circumstance. He doesn't understand, but he knows that God is in control. And finally, he redirects their vision. Verse 12. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He's tapped out. At the end of his prayer, he's being honest. I don't know what to do. Ironically, by praying that and saying, but my eyes are on you, he knows exactly what to do. For it's not in his own power, and it's not in his own strength. He has no ideas. He has no direction. He has no clue. He doesn't know what to do. But his eyes are on you, he says. However, think with me. These are some of the greatest lines recorded in a prayer in the Old Testament, if you ask me. Elegant as they are. To the people that are hearing that, these were not words of comfort. To us, they really can be. 
when we realize chapter 21 and 22. But at the time they heard it, that would not have been comfort. For your king, your earthly leader, your one who's supposed to have all the answers, your one who commands the army says, I don't know what to do. No different than the FDR would have said the same thing. They're about to invade us, and I don't know what to do. Remember, by the time they came back, and he's praying now on the on the steps of the tam- uh, temple, they're probably about a day out, maybe a day and a half out, because they've been marching this whole time. And we know this because the very next day, they meet them in battle, only one day away. So they're only a day, day and a half out when he makes this prayer. They're not words of comfort because the comfort comes next. The comfort comes right after he finishes his prayer when God speaks to a prophet and says, I've got this. You will not have to fight this battle. Because the comfort always comes in the word of God. It doesn't ever come in the word of man. But by bottoming out, Jehoshaphat shows everyone how to deal with this type of situation by saying, Let's take our eyes off of what is in front of us and let's change our vision. Let's change where we're looking and say instead, my eyes are on you. So by doing that, my eyes are on you, you have to, by definition, take your eyes off of the circumstance that surrounds you. He concludes his prayer the same way he started it, with the sovereignty of God. Because why look to God if he's not the one who can cure it. Why look to God if he's not your deliverer? Why look to God if you do not believe whatever circumstance surrounds you, whatever circumstance you're in, if God is not your deliverer, why look? But Jehoshaphat looked and said, I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. What a great confession of weakness. And at that moment of weakness is where he was the strongest. We don't have time to actually look at the rest of the chapter. I'll tell you how it goes. Immediately, a prophet speaks up in the midst of this uh, great throng of people around the temple and says, you will not have to fight this battle. I've got this for you. Jehoshaphat, steeled with that, the very next morning marches out for battle. But he does something incredibly different. He takes the worship team Singers and musicians and puts them out in front of the soldiers to lead them in battle. Can you imagine sending Caleb Moan and his guitar out in front of you for battle? That's what they did. You know, we're going to use the uh, arrows on the strings of the guitar. What, what a total difference showing that God is in control. He sends the praise team out first. And as they begin to praise, God sends fear and confusion amongst the army, and he wipes them out. They begin to kill each other, they begin to panic. I'm sure tens of thousands fled. And by the time Israel gets there, they're all dead or gone. It's a total victory, and it takes three days for them to actually bring all the loot and bounty back from the battlefield to Jerusalem. Three days. And then we find out what God was up to all along. Look at verse 29. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. 
This whole time, God was seeking his glory. For God is always seeking his glory. When you first hear that, you almost think, gee, that sounds kind of selfish. Well, it is if you're not God. Because none of us deserve glory. Excuse me. However, God, he is worthy of all glory. He is worthy of all praise. And therefore, anything other than that is a grave injustice and cannot be tolerated. Therefore, in all things, God is seeking his own glory. He did it through using pagan armies. He did it using Jehoshaphat's prayer. He did it through using worshipers and a battlefield. But he did it in a way that he got all the glory and all the credit. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of the great summaries of the Christian faith, starts out with one of the most beautiful questions and beautiful answers of a summary of our faith. The question is, what is your only comfort? Your only comfort in life and in death. And the answer comes from the Catechism, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, And so preserves me, that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a single hair can fall from my head. That our only comfort in the times of trouble that are so deep that we do not know what to do is that we are not our own. That we have been bought with a price. And we are so precious to our Heavenly Father that not even one single hair can fall from our head without God's total authority and permission. Not one single hair. Jehoshaphat knew the sovereignty of God. He knew that force was unbeatable. He was facing destruction, and he didn't know why. But he knew really what to do, and that was to confess, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Turn to Psalm 121 with me as we conclude. Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascent. The Israelites would sing this psalm over and over as they moved towards Jerusalem during the feasts. And see if this psalm, as we conclude, doesn't capture exactly what Jehoshaphat was praying. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. See the sovereignty of God? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
when we are faced with trials, when we're faced with circumstances we absolutely have no understanding. When things make no sense, when the battle is too large, when we are confused beyond understanding, we can rely on the sovereignty of God as our anchor, and we can pray the exact same thing Jehoshaphat prayed. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Let's pray. Lord, we truly don't know what to do. Really, we never do. For without your wisdom, we are nothing. Teach us the beauty and the depths of the understanding that you are God. That you have bought us with a price. And that precious price is so great that not a hair will fall from our head without your sovereign okay. And that no matter what happens, even if that hair does fall from our head, it is doing so so that you might receive the glory. Lord, may your name be made great in this day, in this country, in this world from now and forevermore. Amen.